You're here, I'm here, because we care. Not just for today, but we care passionately for the future. We know that we only have the possibility of avoiding a looming climate catastrophe if people like us refuse to give up the future of humanity is at stake. While you work to meet the challenge of climate change, I beg of you, don't forget nature. Because today, the destruction of nature accounts for more global emissions than all the cars and trucks in the world. We can put solar panels on every house. We can turn every car into an electric vehicle. But as long as Sumatra burns, we will have failed. So long as the Amazon's great forests are slashed and burned, so long as the protected lands of tribal people, indigenous people, are allowed to be encroached upon, so long as wetlands and bog peats are destroyed, our climate goals will remain out of reach and we will be shit out of time. If we don't stop the destruction of our natural world, nothing else will matter. Why? Because protecting and restoring forests, mangroves, wetlands, these huge, dense carbon sinks represent at least 30% of what needs to be done to avoid catastrophic warming. It is, at this time, the only feasible solution for absorbing carbon on a global scale. Simply put, if we don't protect nature, we can't protect ourselves. This is what we need to do. We need to include nature in every corporate, state, and national climate goal. Put in place the plans, the timetables, to meet those goals. Invest in mangroves and tropical forests in the same way invest in renewable energy. Work to end the destruction of these ecosystems. Commit to the effort in the next decade to secure them for the future. Pursue research in reforestation like we pursue research in carbon capture and storage. Set a goal to cut costs and increase scale dramatically. Empower indigenous communities to use their knowledge, their history, their imaginations, our science, to save their heritage and their lands, respect and ensure their rights. <laughs> Educate and elect leaders who believe in science and understand the importance of protecting nature. Stop, for God's sake, the denigration of science Stop giving power 
to people who don't believe in science, or worse than that, pretend they don't believe in science for their own self-interest. They know who they are. We know who they are. We are all, rich or poor, powerful or powerless, we will all suffer the effects of climate change and ecosystem destruction, and we are facing what is quickly becoming the greatest moral crisis of our time, that those least responsible will bear the greatest costs. If we are to survive on this planet, the only home any of us will ever know, for our climate, for our security, for our future, we need nature. Now, more than ever, nature doesn't need people. People need nature. So let's turn off our phones, let's roll up our sleeves, and let's kick this monster's ass. Welcome back to America Speaks. That was Harrison Ford at the 2018 Global Action Climate Summit. In a new report that was just recently issued by the U.S. federal government, it reaffirmed the full crisis our planet faces. We are at a tipping point, there is no doubt. America Speaks is beginning a series of conversations with powerful game-changers, scientists, and those on the front line of this vital urgency. Today, we are delighted to welcome Wilford Welch to our program. Wilford Welch has been exploring the driving forces impacting our world for more than five decades as a U.S. diplomat in Asia, as an economic development and business consultant in Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and the United States, as the publisher of a world affairs magazine that appeared in 26 countries in six language editions, and as the leader of educational trips to numerous countries and cultures. Wilford developed future planning scenarios for a number of multinational corporations and governments, including Citibank, Toyota, the U.S. Navy, and the Korean government. Wilford was the leader of a research team that developed the Wealth of Nations Index using 63 variables to measure each nation's economic information technology and social well-being. He is the author of In Our Hands, a handbook for intergenerational actions to solve the climate crisis, published in 2018, and as well, The Tactics of Hope, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing Our World, published in 2008. Wilford, your work and your years of wisdom are leading the charge to firmly invite all of us to work together to solve the severe problems that are facing us with climate damage. It is so great to have you on our program today, and I'd like to begin with asking you to give us a sense of how you have come to be entirely focused and dedicated to solving the crisis we are in. Okay, well, thank you. Well, at the age of 20, when I was between my junior and senior years at Yale, I got very clear, for whatever reasons, that I wanted to play a role in the reconciliation between the United States and China. So I changed everything in my life, went off to two years in Hong Kong to teach in a refugee college, then went to law school at Berkeley to study the Chinese legal system, even though I had to get the U.S. as well. 
and then was hired by Bill Bundy to become a diplomat and his aide in the State Department. He was the top guy on Asia. And that was the Johnson administration. But more important, that set me off on a path that caused me to be totally focused over the next four careers on understanding the driving forces as best as I could that will impact our world, social, economic, political, military, etc., that would be able to have me sort of in a systems thinking way as to where our world was heading and why, what are the pitfalls and what can we do about it? I have presented two futures, both looking back from 2050 to today. And the first being when we fail to recognize the forces of nationalism, totalitarianism, a failure to recognize that global warming is and turning into a political issue as opposed to a policy issue, and where that caused the world to unravel over the years, so that now in 2050, back at a missed opportunity. And the other is when we recognized where denial of global warming, climate change, and the politics of fear, among other forces, would take us, and how we rallied, and now in 2050, we're in much better shape than we were even before 2018. Mm -hmm. And I say we're better in 2050 for two reasons. One, we got global warming under control enough so that we would continue to prosper as a civilization. And the second is that we sort of kicked ourselves into a higher level of evolution while recognizing that we have to steward the planet rather than just exploit it. This gives all of us listening today a shot in the arm. When you say that we have more positive direction because we are impacted by the daily news cycle where we hear quite the opposite, but we need time-honored perspective so our audience can get some true clarification. Tell us how you developed in our hands a handbook for intergenerational actions to solve the climate crisis. Give us just a sense of where this started and how you continue to reflect from this handbook today. Since the 60s, literally, I have been exploring in over 100 countries around the world trying to understand, as I said earlier, how this world ticks and what is forcing it to move in different directions. There are two strands to my life. One is the more intellectual analysis of the world that I've just been talking about. The other is that I've been very much a mountaineer, been very involved with a National Outdoor Leadership School and some other activities here in the Bay Area providing environmental education to young kids. And those kinds of outdoor experiences, as well as the global experiences, have caused me to merge the two and start thinking over the last 15, 20 years that I've known Kim, very much about the issue of sustainability, global warming, climate change. And I, I, I've actually started writing this book almost eight years ago. But three years ago, Carol and her company, Cross Culture Journeys, we were leading a trip to Ethiopia. And in southern Ethiopia, we were with the Hamar tribe, particularly, that go back to all of us are the ancestors. They are our ancestors, or those groups in southern Ethiopia and in Kenya. They don't look like us because our pigments have changed, but we actually are very much from them. Those people are being marginalized by their government. 
And I saw in that experience in southern Ethiopia what was going on on a worldwide basis. There was climate change from that southern part of Africa that was drying out the land, reducing the amount of fresh water, and therefore damaging the people. Secondly, the government was focused on economic growth at all costs. And why I add that word all cost, cost to people and planet. And they were taking land away from the indigenous people, putting a fence around it, taking water out of the river, the Omo River, and irrigating the fields, and then leasing those off to the Chinese, the Turks, and the Saudis. Mm. With the result that the local peoples, who supposedly should be benefiting by economic development, were starving or being marginalized. That's the preface of the book. I start with that story and saying that's a microcosm of many of the critical factors that are going on today that are playing out on a worldwide basis. Global warming because our overpopulation, overdevelopment, and overconsumption leading unintended. I mean, that's been a blessing. We've had all that population, all that development, and all that consumption. But the dark side of that is that that's all built on fossil fuels, for which I am appreciative. Mm -hmm. But the result meaning it is doing great damage to future generations. So in Ethiopia, I decided that I was going to devote pretty much the rest of my life in terms of in a professional way to really raising the attention of people who are not focused on this issue to the extent that is necessary to solve the problem. And we have total choice. Mm -hmm. can totally bring this around. We just have to focus our attention. And I'm one of those guys that is, along with many other people, who are trying to get people's attention on this train that's coming right at us. And do you feel right now, when you reflect on how local people are marginalized, which we see consistently, of course, in third world nations, I am a photojournalist with the United Nations. I have seen that in the Congo and in Rwanda and in Burundi. I see it in, you know, a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. I know we certainly see that in the Middle East and in Central America, South America now. So let's just reflect. Do you see that kind of mentality in the United States? It's not an ignorance. It's a willful deceit. Your question is as it relates to applying this to the United States? Yes, yes. I feel we really have to focus on how those in our government today are willfully using this topic of climate denial to continue to line their pockets. Surprise, surprise, I do have some comments on that. (laughs) I think we have to go back on a worldwide basis and on the United States basis. But the worldwide basis, the cause of our challenges is really overpopulation. Hmm. When I was born around the Second World War, there were 1.5 billion people on this earth. There are now 7.5 billion people on this earth. And my reaction is, wow, that's incredible. On this wonderful planet of ours, 7.5 billion people have an opportunity to live on it. But then you look at that against resources, and I'm talking about water and soil, and you find that we are in overshoot. So I can get off on that subject, but that gives you a little sense of where I'm coming from. Now let's start focusing on the United States. We only have 325 million people or so. That's not more than we can handle. But... 
The other issue that I raised when I was talking about Ethiopia is that we are so focused on economic growth and GNP growth. We are focused on that at the expense of many of our own people. You get into a cycle in all these governments when you have the desire for short-term success in their economics, that they are always politically being pandered to by politicians who want to satisfy those near-term interests of a job and more development. And that is driving the fossil fuel side, which is causing global warming. So I'm mixing a lot of things up in my answer to your question, but I do feel that the politicians are doing great damage to us now mm -hmm. by focusing on short-term political wants rather than the planet and our future generation's actual needs. So it's politics versus policy. We are programmed, well, our government is seemingly programmed against this responsibility. Right. So it is now, I feel, becoming epidemic from one side of the political sphere. And I think you used the words uh, politics of fear. It's really politics of profit, isn't it? Well, there's no question that we are focused now on, in, in the current administration, we are focused entirely on satisfying the political wants of our own people and a certain segment of our people to get elected. And that is for profit in some cases, but I'm more concerned about it being at the expense of future generations and, and other people who are going to be badly hurt, whether it's uh, through global climate change, global warming, whatever. We are totally focused on economic growth. So we need to recognize that there's a difference between good economic growth and bad economic growth. Some of that is for profit and some of it is just plain unconsciousness about what fossil fuels is going to be doing. You know, I honestly have to underscore what you just said, because what I'm looking at is we are lagging behind in a very irresponsible way. And I'm not just talking about one facet of our administration. I'm really talking about a whole governmental unit right. where we are facing off against the rest of the world, aren't we? Oh, without question. And that gets into the politics of fear. When I use that term, I'm saying when you start saying us versus you, you're making it very difficult for the two of us to work together on common problems. Mm-hmm. Since the current administration, we have alienated most of our allies on most issues. And then it becomes very, very difficult. Now you say, okay, there's something we all want to work on. And they say, well, I'm not so sure I even want to help you with anything, much less the things we all should be working on together. <laughs> so it's a very dangerous situation. Global warming, you know, I talked about southern Ethiopia. That global warming wasn't because of development in southern Ethiopia. It was because of global warming that was created in many of the Western countries that is now impacting the southern Sahara and Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, etc. So we have to work together because it is a common problem, mm -hmm. not one that you can say, I want it just for myself and I don't give a damn about you. Absolutely. Kim, I think you have a question to follow up here. Well, I think part of it, and you just touched on it, Wilfred, is, is that it's really easy to turn a blind eye when things aren't in your own backyard. 
And there's a, an amazing group of mayors who've come together for the Mayor's Climate Network, who are, despite the fact that we pulled out of the Paris Accord, despite the fact that we've now refused to sign a pact with Japan, as another country has held out against keeping plastic pollution out of our oceans, you know, yeah. all of the different issues that the EPA is just blowing up on a daily basis, including yeah. just read today, 117 million people could be affected by this new decision that is taking the ability to have access to clean drinking water here in our own backyard. Right. You know, I think that when you talk about global warming and climate change and sea level rise and all of those kinds of things, if it's not happening to you, it becomes like, well, there's just one more thing happening. But do you think of why people don't become educated, why they don't really start to learn what they can do to take action because it hasn't affected them yet. Do you think that's part of it? Yeah, uh, very, very much so. A couple of things. One, there's a very good book. I'm going to get the title wrong, but I just love it. And it's called What People Think About When They're Trying Not to Think About Global Warming. <laughs> and it analyzes really why we are not paying attention. And it's pretty obvious why we're not paying attention. And there are a lot of excuses, of course. One is that it seems like it's, or some people will say it's not real. And that often is people with some with very genuine scientific background who want to hold on to something, but many are vested interests that really don't want to deal. Like our friend that had the snowball in the US Congress. And he pulled it to Congress and said, it's getting colder. And that's one of the reasons why the vernacular has changed from global warming, which is the real issue, to climate change, which is the result of global warming. Got us off topic, and we're still off topic as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. But we are now in such a busy civilization in which people feel so compelled to focus on so many different issues, whether it's women's rights or children's rights or whoever, immigration that people don't see this as a high priority because it's not affecting them. Hmm. That is a real problem. I liken it to, I know I get abstract here, but remember when you were young and you used to go out and play on the railroad tracks? Your mother told you not to do it, but you went out there. The scientists are listening to the track. They can feel the vibration of global warming, in this case, the train, coming right down the tracks. And they know it, and 97% of the climate scientists say that train is coming right down the track and it's moving fast. Hmm. There are some of us that are standing near the track, either have our heads down or are standing close enough to feel the vibration on the tracks and realize that the train is probably only a mile or half a mile away. And there's so much commotion on they're having such a good time near the tracks that they're just not listening. Mm -hmm. And that's a metaphor for what's going on because there is so many distractions. That's such a great visual, too, because I think people have to really consider what you're saying here. They have to open their eyes and they have to listen. Yes, yes. And it's very hard. This book, In Our Hands, really is a solid book because I spent 20 months writing the very shortest, most concise book I possibly could write because of people's attention span. Make it easy because of the problem. And unfortunately, you're right, Kim, it is very hard for people to take action or get concerned when it doesn't affect them locally. So that is our major problem. And only 18% of Americans, according to the Yale Program for Climate Policy, 18% are really focused on climate change, global warming, in terms of who they vote for, mm -hmm. their consumer patterns, their community activities, 
they are focused on dealing with this issue. They know that the train is coming right down the tracks. There are 33% more, that's over 100 million Americans, who say they are very concerned, mean it intellectually, but in their actions are not doing squat. They buy a Prius, they separate the trash, and the third thing they do is they pat themselves on the back as a good environmentalist. And that is not even close to what is necessary. And the things that are necessary are exceedingly easy to do. What do you tell our audience that they should be telling their government officials, their senators and their congresspeople, to try to mitigate this? Well, clearly, we have to change the conversation with our elected officials and with each other. The first action we have to do is actually start talking about this. It's not making people wrong. It's educating people. You say, what do we say to our elected officials? The first thing we say is who we elect is our elected officials. Amen. Uh, the lens through which we view the world and view who we're going to elect has to change as far as I'm concerned. So we are looking at those people who say they're very concerned about jobs and taxes. And you say, yeah, so am I. I'm worried about jobs and taxes, but I'm also really concerned about global warming and climate change. And if they say that's a hoax, then you say, thank you very much. I'm going to make sure you are out of office. Amen. So we have to start there. We don't have a national conversation. It's been sidelined. There was a uh, what, 12 hours of presidential debates before this last election, and not one commentator raised the question of global warming, even though a lot of people say it's very important. It's not the highest on anybody's list, except those 18% that I suggested are really focused on it every day. We have to start focusing on something that we'd rather not pretend exists and that train is coming at us. As you may know, Wilfred, I've done a lot of work with young people, particularly at risk and vulnerable youth and youth in general. And you talk about this intergenerational collaboration in, right. in, your, in your new book, in, in Our Hands, a handbook for intergenerational actions to solve the climate crisis. What does that look like in practical terms? Thank you for asking the question. The way I hold this, Kim and Trish, is, as I said, my generation has had this most extraordinary life of more and more goods and services and efficiency and travel and fancy cars and good foods that came from long ways away, etc. And the population, as I said, has exploded from 1.5 to 7.5 billion people. That's the good news. And I say thank you, fossil fuels, for making it possible for all of those plastics and all of those plane trips, all of those things that I have been the beneficiaries of. So I don't damn the fossil fuel industry for having a 200 year run here and particularly the last 70 or so years since the end of the Second World War. But that one of fossil fuels has had an unintended consequences and it's gonna kill us if we do not wake up. So I say, thank you, fossil fuels. Now it's time is over. And I say to the younger generation, I didn't mean to create the problem, but I have the beneficiary of something that is a problem for you. And I now want to work with you 
because you're stuck with the bill. Absolutely. So I'm basically seeking to engage both the millennials and the younger generation in general and the older generation, such as myself, who have been the beneficiaries. What we have is some of our generation have lots of money. They certainly have a lot of time. And there's only so many rounds of golf that you can play or martinis that you can drink after you play them. And I'm not knocking that. I mean, I don't tend to do either one, but that's not neither here nor there. Uh, we have contacts that may be pertinent. And we have experiences that may be highly relevant. The younger generation doesn't have a lot of time, doesn't necessarily have a lot of money, doesn't have so much experience, and is seeking contacts that will make these things happen. And one of them is going to be the president of the United States, the other is going to be the CEO of GE, and the other of Microsoft, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have an opportunity to give back to this younger generation. And as Margaret Mead's daughter, Catherine Bateson, has pointed out, we've all got 15 years of relatively good health on average that our grandparents never had after retirement. They usually retired at 60 and died at 62. And we now, many of us are in our 70s and 80s, pretty healthy. Well, what could be a better way of being engaged than being of service with our money, skills, time to this younger generation that is now stuck with the bill, as I like to say it. So that's the intergenerational collaboration. And I'm trying to help get certain projects going that would really stimulate that intergenerational action. So given that you have not only the expertise, the opportunity, the means, and the vision, you are in the know. So here we are talking to somebody who's in the know, who has the contacts with those who may be like-minded, such as yourself. How is that going? Tell us about some of the programs and the positive outcomes that you're seeing now. I'm working now on a project, which is an internet-based project, in which people can start from all over the world, share ideas with each other and actions, and start forming groups through this website. So that's the kind of thing. But there are all sorts of ways. Is there a name of the website yet, or is it just on the ground floor? It was founded when I, my first book, which was called The Tactics of Hope, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing Our World, and you find that website there's something there that's called My Circle, and it was designed to enable people to say, what kind of focus do I want to have? Education, health, environment, etc. And you drop your concerns into uh, one quarter of the circle. The second is, where do I want to be a service? Oh, I want to focus on Africa and Latin America. The third is, what kind of contribution do I want to make? Oh, I've got money. Now, this other person says, well, I'm an engineer and I'd like to provide my engineering talent, et cetera. And the back end of that has been thousands of NGOs from around the world. And we're connecting them to each other so that Mary Jane could be in Iowa. And before you know it, she said, I'm interested in Indonesia or Asia and I want to be working on water projects. And before you know it, up pops 10 organizations all in Asia that are working on exactly that kind of thing. And she said, oh, there I'm going to go. I'm going to hop on a plane or I'm going to give some money or whatever I do. Wow, this is fabulous. <laughs> the other is Kiva. 
which I mentioned in my first book, which is that wonderful organization that's based out here in which you can take and say, I want to give $100 to an entrepreneur in another country. And you can identify, they will show you based on the algorithm of what you say you're interested in, and you put that $100 down. And then if they raise enough money, then that entrepreneur gets all of those $750 they need to start that little project in their village. And at the end of that, after it's been paid off, you get the money back or you can reinvest it in another one. So those are two models. Mm -hmm. We're merging together in a internet-based network, if you will, to focus on intergenerational actions to solve the climate crisis. At least that's the plan. And it seems so substantive and logical to set this up. You know, I've dreamed of finding something like this, but what you have is a recipe for people being busy and finding ways not to contribute. This is such a perfect place to go because whatever you have, you have something that you can contribute to this, right? Exactly. And on that point, as you both know very well, being of service, and I don't want to be a missionary here, and I'm not a missionary, but being of service to others as opposed to just taking for yourself in this overly individualized society we now have, in which we're less focused on contributing and more focused on getting what we can for our own immediate satisfaction. That's a very crude statement. What I'm saying is being of service to others is so darn satisfying and I really encourage people. Now I'm saying it can be really satisfying to support future generations and the planet. That's not a sacrifice. No. An energizing activity, which you don't have to take everything on. It doesn't have to be so tough, so challenging. It can be really fun and engaging with other people. And could change your life, right? It can easily change your life, and certainly it's motivated by I want to thank you so much, Wilford, for joining us today on America Speaks, and I want to invite our audience to return next time for our continuing series on the climate crisis and to how we can, in fact, get involved to be part of the solution. The only people who are willing to act are the people on the front lines who are directly in harm's way, right? That's what got me into this, living in what would soon be a drilling field where they were going to poison the water of my community. That's what activated me. Yes, I believed in these things. Yes, I was sympathetic to them. Yes, I don't want to see you know, people of color be just inundated by water and floods or drought or whatever misery that's coming down the line towards us, right? But at the end of the day, unless there's action, it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. And so when I look around and I see what things are happening, where things are really happening are in the places where people's lives are on the line. And those are the people who are going to begin this revolution that has to take place. It's literally a revolution. It's a political economic, historical, um, cultural revolution that we're talking about. That was Mark Ruffalo, and his words could not be clearer. I want to direct our listeners to Wilford's website. You can find him at www.wilfordwelch.com. That's W-I-L-F-O-R-D-W-E-L-C-H.com. 
If you have protested for anything in the past 18 years, you very well may be in my book, I Protest. Please go to my website, tishlampert.org, that's www.tishlampert.org, and see if you can find yourself in my book. You can also follow me on Twitter, at tishlampertcom. That's at T-I-S-H-L-A-M-P-E-R-T-C-O-M. And find me on Instagram, T-I-S-H underscore L-A-M-P-E-R-T underscore O-R-G. And I want to invite everyone to go to Tish Lampert's America Speaks on Apple Podcasts, where you can find our archived episodes. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz, Oscar Batista, and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at americaspeakspodcast at gmail.com and tell us what you thought of today's episode and come back for our next episode of America Speaks. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. <laughs>